IAPA just held the first North American Trade Summit, and today we'll break down the key takeaways around the shift to authentic reality. That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring the haunt industry to you every weekday. We have news, education, and on-location coverage from Halloween experiences around the world. Whether you're a professional or enthusiast, each episode helps you better prepare for Halloween. Outside of this podcast, we have videos, education, and even events. Links to everything we do are in the show notes. On Mondays, we break down large trends from the news and discuss why it matters to you in our weekly Green Tagged series, co-hosted by Scott Swenson and myself. And check back tomorrow for our weekly Haunt News Roundup. Okay, here's this week's installment of Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. From our studios in Los Angeles and Abu Dhabi, this is Green Tagged Theme Park in 30. And today, Scott and I will recap the major takeaways from the first ever IAPA North American Trade Summit. Scott and I are both IAPA certified executives, and Scott has contributed quite a lot to IAPA over the years, right, Scott? Yes, I've been an IAPA member for many, many years, both when I was with Bush Gardens and on my own. And I've been a subject matter expert for several different projects, including the certification for the ICE program. And at the very moment, you can attend several of my online classes. I do want to point out, even though I do sit on the IAPA Entertainment Subcommittee, I am not an official spokesperson for IAPA. Mm -hmm. So anything that I represent here in the show is my own opinion. As being fully transparent, as a member of IAPA and a long-term member of IAPA and a strong support of what they do, but I am not an official spokesperson for the organization. So I just want to clarify that right up front so that nobody gets the least bit concerned or, or mm -hmm. raises any eyebrows. Yeah, we are just two fans of IAPA who have been certified and appreciate what they do. And we want to distill the information from this first ever event to the listeners. And Scott, right. of course, is in Abu Dhabi. He did not fly back to attend. So I thought that would give us the perfect perspective. So I'll basically be trying to explain what happened at the summit and Scott will give us his perspective and take on what happened, right? Oh. Sounds good. <laughs> so let's start with some background here. The IAPA trade summits have replaced the former leadership summits. So I used to go to the leadership summits back in the day. And basically what they did is they moved around from, from region to region. And the last one was in 2020, which I was at, and it was in Los Angeles. That was the old model. This is the new model. And rather than rotating between regions, each region is going to host their own trade summit, which they have already been doing this year. So I spoke with Michael Shelton, who's the VP and executive director of IAPA North America, about how he thought the trade summits were going. And he said this new series is more about connecting a region and speaking to local issues. We're finding as an association that every region's a little different and we need to service our members' needs differently in each region. The format of the leadership summit in the past was more of a high-level summit with high-level tours and speakers. This is more about connecting the people in the region and bringing everyone together. And of course, I talked about the North Star. <laughs> we had the three major components. We wanted to have an education component, we had a member connection component with the tours, and then a trade component to in include our manufacturers and suppliers. As a former operator, you're always looking at several things. You're looking to connect with other professionals that you can maintain relationships beyond this. There's also suppliers here, but I think also there's lots of intangibles. You'll look at decor in a place, light fixtures, mirrors, bathrooms, signage, so many little intangible things that you'll see other members doing that you can incorporate in what you're doing. It's a big reason our members cherish these connection events. 
This year's summit took 134 attendees on five facility tours in the San Diego area over four days with 21 trade partners and three keynote speakers. So the keynotes address the high level issues or themes. And then we went and toured facilities and those facilities really focused on presenting their solutions to some of the big higher level issues. So you got theory backed up by what does this actually mean for attractions here locally. It was four days, as I mentioned, I was only there for two of the days, the two middle days. And I really saw two large themes emerge. And I thought we would just go through each theme and then talk about the theme and then talk about the solutions from the places that we went to. So the two large themes I saw were authentic reality, the shift to this thing called authentic reality and staffing. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> and the facilities I went to were the San Diego Zoo, SeaWorld, and Belmont Park. One of the things that's important to recognize is the fact that our industry continues to grow. It used to be that there were really only viable, big-end, high-end, very successful, innovative parks in a couple of locations around the country in the United States. This is no longer the case. And there are more, there's more and more innovation taking place in a bunch of smaller places. So the idea of bringing together a localized community into these kinds of sessions just seems to make more sense. And, and it's just another way that I think IAPA continues to um, adjust and amend the way that it does things based on the way that the industry is growing. And, and I love the idea that they're looking at here are the big macrocosm issues, and then here's how we're looking at them in this region. I should clarify as well, they never said it in that many words. This is me extrapolating from my experiences that the two themes are staffing and this authentic reality. Philip is the one who boxified everything. He, he, I, just, uh, I love boxes he so much. Nice little containers, but that's great because then I get to go in and open them up like Christmas presents and then just spread them off. <laughs> Okay, so theme number one, authentic reality. So George Walker, pretty infamous in the industry, he gave the kickoff keynote presentation, and that's really what he focused on. That is his term. He introduced the concept, and he believes basically that there's a shift in what guests want, and they're wanting more authentic themed experiences. When experiences are the product, authenticity is the currency. He gave a timeline <laughs> for, for this kind of shift to illustrate his point. And he argues that we started off in heightened reality, which is like roller coaster rides and just things that make reality more punchy. And then we transitioned into artificial reality, as in creating an artificial structure that tries to be a reality. For example, walking into movies, so i.e. Disney. After artificial reality, there was the virtual reality phase, which is replace what you could have built in the real world with pixels. So now he argues that we're in this new phase, which he is dubbing authentic reality. He gave a lot of examples, beer moving from big into microbreweries, Airbnbs moving from just places where you can rent a room to really playing up on the authentic localized experience. And I think the biggest one he gave was the dining, citing that people are now spending more on food at restaurants and experiences than in grocery stores. For the first time in history, people spent more money on food at restaurants than they did at grocery stores. So these two things line up, and that made me realize people want experiential dining more than ever before. Even when they go shopping, we used to go shopping and then ran to the food court to grab a bite to eat. Now people statistically are going to eat, and then while they're there, they're grabbing something at the store. To me, I broke it down like authentic reality equals 
interactive plus emotional plus dedication to the story. I love the fact that it now has a name because quite honestly, as you pointed out, Philip, we've been talking about this for years now. And and maybe we were just ahead of our time. I don't know. <laughs> but no, the truth, the, the truth of the matter is we've been talking about this for a very, very long time. And I think he's 100% spot on. It, there's a couple of things that I think we have to take into consideration here. You know me, I'm always going to talk about either the pendulum or the motion of things. People want real again. And I've yeah. said that for a very, very long time. I said to several of my colleagues the last couple of years and was lambasted for it. And that is the fact that virtual reality is already dead. And they were like, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. But what was discussed in this keynote of tech itself will not last. It won't last on its own. But can tech be heightened to the point where it creates an authentic experience for the user? And that is still, I think, to be determined. So I, I agree. I actually think that this whole idea of authentic reality is, is something that audiences are ready for. They're tired of the gimmickry. They've learned to accept technology as a given. It used to be... If you got the chance to go to Europe, it was amazing and it was special and it was rare. And then that became commonplace when travel became easier. And then it became, well, it's special if you get to do the, the immersive Oculus goggles that take you all through Europe and that's really cool. Well, that's now become sort of passe. Mm -hmm. That's become very accessible, overly accessible perhaps. So now the idea of going back to actually sit in a piazza in Rome and and be there and be surrounded by the people and the, the unexpected nature of what the guests are going to do and what the artists are going to do and what the music, how the music is going to change and the smell of the food and the look of the gelato. And the reason I use this as an example is ironically, at the same time as Philip was attending this seminar, I spent the weekend in Rome. Mm -hmm. It's a rough gig, but someone's got to do it. And I was sitting in Piazza Navona and I said to myself, gosh, why can't theme parks replicate this level of comfort and reality because there was nothing forced there was nothing pushed mm -hmm. yes there were performers but no one was forcing you to gather to watch a show and what was interesting is since they were street performers one performance they, they did a, they had a professional courtesy to one another so they wouldn't all perform at the same time and one would perform and then that audience would move on to the next and, it, and i thought this is like a really utopian theme park environment yep. because everybody there was having a good time and nobody felt pressured that, oh, now I've got to get to this attraction and now I've got to get to this attraction and now I've got to do this. And now it was an authentic experience that was crafted to a certain extent. But I kept asking myself, why do we work so hard to try to replicate something that just happens so organically? Yep. And, and, and I realize that I'm being overly simplistic. Yes, there are a lot of operational challenges to replicate something that just organically happens in a theme park. I understand that. So it's one of those situations where we have to work really hard to see how we craft what we have in order to create something that feels emotionally authentic. Yeah. I think that's a perfect distillation of his concept. And he broke it down five ways to achieve that, which I think all of which are present in your example, like moving from passive to interactive, interactive, not meaning just the technology. So as you said, there were things you could do, you had a role to play, you could explore it. It wasn't just passive entertainment, theming in service to the story. So as in 
everything should be in service of the story, but you should be able to look around and things logically follow the story place. And he talked about the delivery of gratification should be natural, which I think is a key that you just mentioned. There should be surprises and, and they should come up, but the delivery should be natural. And he talked about it not being a marathon, like you mentioned as well, like taking it from being a checklist that people want to check off the big e-ticket rides into something where there's actual discovery, where people have the ability to discover things. They walk into an area and they have a big reveal and they're surprised and delighted by that. And then of course, moving from mass experiences to personal experiences. And they're just like caveat on this. He, it's not like he's saying that there shouldn't be any mass experiences anymore. It's more like he's saying there should be room for these other items in that. There's there's always gonna be the the want to go to Disneyland and watch the parade, for example, right? But that doesn't mean there can't also be stormtroopers that come out and interact with the crowds on a non-scheduled time to make it happen serendipitously. I think we have to get away from the either or mentality. Yes. It's not, do we build a great big roller coaster or do we build a realm and an environment like, like Ghost Town Live, for example, which do we do? And my answer is you do both and you combine them. And I know you're thinking, well, we can't afford to do both, but you can. You just have to figure out how to make it work budgetarily. Don't make it so that you have to go to the ride. Make it so that you have to go to the realm. Disney has started this with Star Wars stuff, although everybody wants to get on the ride, but it's just as as engaging and fun to be in the realm itself. I've used the Universal example for years. When Hogwarts first opened, one of my favorite things to do was to go early in the morning when I was staying in one of the resorts and have breakfast there. Yep. So I could have breakfast and live in Hogwarts for the morning and everybody else is racing to the ride and racing to the ride and, and I'm like, no, I'm going to go have breakfast and then I'm going to go and I'm going to shop a little bit and maybe buy a wand and then maybe go to the ride and then maybe engage with the characters or whatever. Now, having said all of that, I think we have to make certain that we educate our audiences as well so that that is the expectation. This is going to be a time of transition because, yes, I agree completely that this is where younger audiences are going, but it's not where all audiences are yet. Yeah. It's where they're headed. It is the destination that they're aiming for and that they will thoroughly enjoy, but it's not like a light switch. It's not like we automatically shift from it where we're big attraction based to environmentally based or authentic, authentically based, authentic reality based. It's just like when we transitioned from, from horses to automobiles. Everybody thinks that we just all of a sudden horses were no longer used and everything went to cars. That's not at all true. And it was a rough transition. In fact, it, there were a lot of injuries because people who were used to horses couldn't figure out that cars moved faster. Okay, so we have to, as we work on these kinds of projects, as we develop these kinds of projects, we have to make certain that we educate the audience and bring them along with us. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges theme parks face in general when they do major shifts. And I think that's why so many of them are hesitant to drink the Kool-Aid and, and move forward because they're like, well, I understand how to build a roller coaster. I don't understand how to build a realm that is that has a roller coaster in the center of it. Center of it. Mm -hmm. This is some pretty high level presentation conversation and we're asking these natural questions that as Scott has outlined and then we got to go to the facilities and see how they're putting these things into place so I thought we'd start off with the San Diego Zoo and two of the experiences that jumped out to me a lot about that was first the concept of parallel play and if it's done well the parallel play is an authentic experience because it 
satisfies all those five things. So the biggest thing was their expedition base camp, which is the new place there at the San Diego Zoo. And there's a whole space that's designed next to the squirrel monkey habitat where kids can play in the same way as the monkeys. So on its face, right, it looks like just a regular ropes course, but it's really supposed to be to set up those natural occurring moments where the monkeys are playing just on their own and then the kids can go in and the kids can play in the same way next to the monkeys who are also playing. And I thought that is a perfect example of all these things tied together. And the other thing that I saw was the kind of more personal experiences they're talking about, which of course the animal encounters, which are something that have been around for a long time, but it just goes to underscore your point about either or animal encounters are good authentic experiences because it's a real animal encounter. And you're again, you're not like, it's the real animal. You can only get so much out of it. So we had an animal encounter with a little animal and the handler told a funny story about how essentially this animal is driven by smell and loves to like roll around in poop and becomes this like ball of poop. Another defense that they will do is anoint themselves in the smelliest thing that they can find. Your favorite thing is to roll themselves in poop. So sometimes we give the other animal poop and they'll take it and they'll shower with it. It's like we gave them a bar of soap and they're like, yeah, give me poop. I love it. They'll put it everywhere and they'll be very fastidious about it. And they'll be like, okay, I'm ready to go now. So then animals will just think it's the weird moving ball of poop and they walk in here. So I was like, well, that's a great way to relate to the audience, but also show the animal and explain its whole habitat. Yeah, yeah working with a lot of zoos, zoos run... They, they run a very delicate line because they don't want to anthropomorphize the animals and make them feel yeah. like and make them create the illusion that they are humans or have human emotions. However, it is important for especially younger <clears throat> audiences to understand that there are similarities to help them have empathy for mm -hmm. these animals. So zoos, in my opinion, zoos are already set up for Shall, dare we say a renaissance? Not that zoos have ever really gone away, but for a renaissance in the in the, the the parallel play or the authentic experience realm, they've been doing it. That's that's what zoos have done. I I I find it interesting that because of some other recent things, not well, hopefully fading things in history uh, within the industry, that zoos have been very mm. afraid to be fun. They've been afraid to be entertaining, and they have been focused very much on book learning. But I'm I'm excited to see more and more like like San Diego, like San Diego Zoo, mm -hmm. um, going back to that experience, going back to the idea of let's let's play like the animals, let's have fun while we're learning, because that way the learning sticks. Yeah. Moving on to SeaWorld was our next stop, and Jim Lake gave the keynote address there, and he started his career in 1989 as a parking attendant for Epcot and has been in the industry since then. And it was a very candid discussion, really, just about the challenges that they had and what he's seen in it. He did discuss how he thinks the business has really changed since the pandemic and that we need new ways to lead the industry forward. Many would say that we're still in a big place of COVID recovery. There's probably some truth to that, but I think we're kind of past that in a lot of ways. And I think we tend to use that as a crutch a little bit. And what it really is, I think, is the world's just changed. Like the business has just changed. And I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way we remember it. I don't think we can lead the business the way we used to. And I think we have to start thinking about new ways to, to lead the business. And last year, we saw a lot of pent-up demand. And so that impacted our business in a unique way. We can kind of pass that now. Um, and we have to think about it's a new day. It's a new world. And it's going to continue to change. 
he did hint at it. He did hint at that, the, the bigger overall change. He talked about a big part of their future is going to be food festivals and seasonal operations, again, to beef up their shoulder seasons and et cetera, et cetera. He wants locals, when they're around the dinner table and they're wondering what should we get for dinner, he wants them to think, we're going to go to SeaWorld for dinner. Food and alcohol festivals are really a trendy thing and they work. You just have to provide a really good experience. Quite frankly, food and beverage, since I've got here, hasn't been one of our strong points. I sat down with the team several months ago and I said, I want our past members and our local audience here in San Diego to be sitting at home saying, where are we gonna go for dinner tonight? And I wanted to say, we're gonna go to SeaWorld. SeaWorld has such great food, we wanna go have dinner at SeaWorld. And so we're really focusing on raising the bar on our food and beverage, and, and I can see it moving forward. It's gradual, it's not as fast as maybe I would like it to move, but it's been moving forward, and an opportunity with a food festival like we currently have online is a great way for us to showcase some really great items, and our guests seem to be really loving them a lot. It has to be restaurant-level quality, and it has to also be authentic. <laughs> The biggest one for me is authenticity through food. I did very, very few uh, plays on things or fusion or anything like that because I wanted to really represent the different cultures that we had within those regions and areas. And I actually had, a, had an opportunity to speak with the executive chef there that evening. Like, How do you go about choosing that? And are you taking things that aren't from this area? The cool part with like the craft beer industry here in San Diego is everything's at my fingertips. I'm able to collaborate with the brewers and things like that. So we can talk flavor profiles with brewers and this is what we'd like to see. As far as like dishes, one of the other things that I try to do with the authenticity is what's the most approachable dish for the theme park industry that I can showcase to your theme park guest. I've also tried to focus a lot on plant-based vegetarian and gluten-friendly because we are in Southern California and to be yeah. conscious of those yeah. guests as well. One of our little like kiosks called Bold Brazilian Bites. We have arepas, which are, are South American. And then we also have, it's called Pau de Queco, which is a gluten-friendly cheese bread, which is decently common when you go to like Brazilian barbecue yep. or anything like that. Yep. And then we have a plant-based option, which is a soy riso empanada. Okay. So it's chorizo, but it's soy, soy riso empanada, and it's been a big hit for that yeah. particular hut. So it's something approachable that's plant-based. I think the other thing that's interesting about that idea of authenticity is that you're trying to an authentic dish, but it's in an environment that's not authentic. You're just trying to represent the food. Correct. You're like, this thing you are eating, even though it's being served in the middle of a theme park, but the the flavor profile itself is authentic to what you'd experience if you walk down this neighborhood. Correct, correct. So, so like the other thing too is like we themed the entertainment to the area for the food as well. I was kind of able to drive what we're doing, and then our entertainment partners kind of did everything around it. So we kind of are doing the best tie-in that we can, and it's been a lot of fun. When I was with Disney, we had a park president, and he said, food here has become an attraction. If we invested as much in a, a, a kitchen as we did in a, in a roller coaster, then I think we'd all be a lot better off, if that makes sense. Not obviously to that level, but hey, let's, let's, let's get in there and get scrappy and, and, and figure out what, what everybody truly, truly wants. And then on the parallel play and personal experiences note, Jim did mention in his speech that 2024 
will be a big focus on animals with their new exhibit opening and on conservation and also on opportunities to experience and play with animals in a different way. I want to focus really on animals next year. We actually have plans for a new exhibit that's going to be really cool. And I want to focus on really bringing that to the forefront more because I truly believe the roller coasters are great. And you know, I started out with rides early in my career and I love them. I think guests really primarily come here to see these great animals. And I think we have a really great opportunity to improve how we showcase those animals make that experience great so people can learn and we can really focus on our conservation and how we can really impact the world through a lot of the research we do here and a lot of the great work that our rescue team does here. And to that note, they did have us do the dining with orcas session, which again, hit all of these notes because they gave a talk about the orcas and they just said, look, we are going to eat and the orcas are going to do their thing. And they might splash you, like things might happen. You're hanging out and you're eating and they're hanging out and then and they might try and get your attention. They might splash you, it might be a thing. But I just kind of loved how that all fit together like that. Well, and that's something that we have to continue to recognize in the the authentic reality side is that we need to, as, as operators, we need to accept the fact that not everybody is going to get the same experience. Mm-hmm. We need to accept the fact that there are going to be and we have to release our our control freak mentality as theme park owners and operators that we can control every single moment. The thing that makes something authentic is its lack of predictability. We and and I know that there are there are myself included to be completely honest, there are theme park people out there who go, "Yeah, but I want to make sure that everybody has a great time." Okay, we'll create an authentic experience that has enough legs, enough levels that it, they will have a great time. Just to circle back for that going out to dinner at, at SeaWorld comment, that's something that's already happening here in Abu Dhabi with, mm-hmm. with two of the different parks that I've experienced. One of the things that I did when I, when I moved over here is I got, a, I got a pass. I got an annual pass. And it's not uncommon to see people go to Warner Brothers World or Ferrari World at an hour before closing just to go for dinner because they have elevated their food offerings and this being a very multicultural environment. I mean, you've heard me say before, only about 20% of the population are actually Emirati. So the rest, the 80% come from different places all around the world. So it opens up their culinary opportunities vastly and they need to be authentic or these people are not going to come and eat and enjoy. But there are many, and in fact, this evening, I may run over to Warner Brothers and, and grab some butter chicken and, and have dinner. That is commonplace here, and it's because they have elevated their their culinary offerings past what we think of as standard theme park food, anything that comes frozen in a package. And this may be frozen in a package too, I don't know, but it is cooked and presented in a way that it has it is restaurant quality or above, and it therefore makes it very viable to be part of just your your daily mentality, and again, more authentic. The last location that I visited was Belmont Park. And just for context here, Belmont Park is an oceanfront historic amusement park located in the Mission Beach area of San Diego. It was developed in 1925, so they're only two years away from their centennial celebration, and it's not gated. So the the beach is is public right and then there's the historic park that's right off the beach and it's not gated and it's a collection of businesses and they've acquired 80% of the businesses with 20% being tenants and what they're really trying to do is tie together all of these separate businesses into a coherent theme and also to 
to really bring the brand of the park to the forefront. So basically we toured each of the little businesses and we learned about how they individually operated and what they all do. And I saw these same themes kind of playing out at each different one. In Parallel Play, they have a facility called Plunge and it's the historic pool building there that they have kept, the, the building is still there, it's still a pool. But what they've done is they've built a gym around the pool. If you imagine, you can go on the second floor and the windows on one side face out and you can see the water and the beach and that. And on the other side, then you can see the pool while you're working out. Spencer Meinberg, I'm the general manager of Plunge San Diego and oversee operations of Escapeology. So within year one, we were 4,000 members for the gym and the pool. You're selling a membership between 120 and $160 and you get that recurring monthly revenue. And then we have our day pass revenue. We have months that were over $100,000 just in day pass revenue. We have months that were $60,000 just in birthday parties. So we have all these recurring models and it's a, it's a season sustainable business. It's a weather sustainable business. So 12 months a year, rain or shine, we're able to operate and offer great programs. Where do you see yourselves evolving into? We're always on a lookout to serve the San Diego community. So we have a big presence in the community. And when you reach out into the community, you have your fingers in the community, then you're able to pull them back into your locations and your facility. So uh, big initiatives for 2023 are expanding outside of our four walls. So we have Paradise San Diego that we're launching summer 2023. That's we have 24,000 square feet of a beach permit that we're expanding outside of the plunge walls and now offering our full service at the beach. They can add on a day pass, but we can give them a full experience beachside they can rent their cabanas they can have full service they can do all that so we're already thinking ahead of like we're busy in here and how do we still serve the community and that's by getting outside of our walls a different take on parallel play right and what it allowed them to do is have recurring revenue and also to bring in the community last year they did 1600 birthday parties <laughs> what they've done is they've made little reserved areas all around the pool and they have eight of them and they rent them out in two and a half hour increments. So like party spaces, basically that allows them to have those, you know, individual experiences. So, so it's interesting because having been to Belmont park, not as part of this particular expo, but having been to Belmont park, Belmont park, I think is a perfect way to end our show when we're talking about authentic reality. Belmont park has been there since 1925, as you say, and, and it was first opened in 25. And it truly is this sort of organic, as you say, Philip, they were a bunch of different organizations who were all sharing the same space. So it had that 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 authentic 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 quality and is I, I'm excited to see that Plunge is is diving into that no pun intended full fully and wholeheartedly. Obviously, this is a huge topic that both Philip and I are very very passionate about. But unfortunately, we are out of time for this week. So guys, thank you once again. I hope you've enjoyed our, our recap. I know I have because I didn't get a chance to attend the the IAPA the IAPA convention. But I I'm thrilled that that Philip was able to share his thoughts and we were able to discuss it for you. Until next time, on behalf of Philip Hernandez with Gantam Lighting and the Haunted Attraction Network and myself, Scott Swenson with Scott Swenson Creative Development, this is Green Tag Theme Park in 30 and we will see you next week. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Support for this episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. We release a free weekly industry newsletter. Sign up on our website or at the link in our show notes. The Haunted Attraction Network team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Maximus Bryant. 
Our partner stations include A Scott in the Dark, Scare Track, The Scare Factor, and Haunt Topic Radio. Finally, please, please, please rate and subscribe to our show wherever you're listening. And until next time, haunters, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.